distractions are great, um, and they actually help to serve serve a purpose this morning. Um, well, it's having issues there too, but we're going to do this anyway. Um, so we've been doing, we've been walking through Matthew here, and we've been in this series that we've we've called Opposition Rising because we've seen the opposition to Jesus continually go up, right? So much so that last week as we opened God's word, we saw this group of Pharisees, these religious leaders, um, plotting to kill Jesus, plotting to kill him. Um, So there was this opposition coming up against him and it was increasing. And I thought, how can we illustrate rising opposition? Well, one is, I thought, well, it's kind of hard to focus in church sometimes, right? And having, having glitches does sometimes make it difficult. I, I know it. So this works perfect, actually, to serve the point. So thanks, Steve. I know you did it on purpose. So I thought about it like this. Um, it's one of those things where, um, you know, you come and you, you... I hope you all come and you want to listen. You want to hear God's word. You want to hear how things are going. But then there's always there's a distraction that opposes you, right? There's always something going on. And it would almost be like somebody came up here and started throwing darts um, at people sitting in the front row... Um, while you're trying to focus. And the guy's just, he just keeps on talking, but it's kind of hard to listen, isn't it? Are you wanting me to throw one at you, Max? Is that what you're doing back there? I saw Max kind of bouncing a little. I can't throw him that far. I don't think they'll... Ugh. Oh, man, I made it to Chris. The harder you throw... Oh, did it stick? Oh, cool. So it makes a distraction, right? And it, it is an opposition to hearing God's word. And really, the reason I wanted to throw darts at specifically the front row... Um, for those of you who don't know, youth group meets Thursday nights, and this provides me a great opportunity. I love it. Because um, I get to do three things now. One, I get to throw darts at our high school students. <laughs> Makes me happy. <laughs> uh, two, two, it gives me an opportunity to plug our youth group that meets on Thursday nights at 6.30. And if you don't come, it's a good time. Such a good time that whenever Jared shows up to work on Monday, or on, I guess it was Friday, on Friday morning, and I come into the building, I start finding darts laying all over the church building. I found nine of those things laying around, y'all. I don't know what's going on at youth group, but it, it sounds like fun. So if you're in high school, come to youth group. Thursday nights, 6.30. Sounds like a great time. Um, and if you're lucky, I'll show up and you can shoot me with a dart or something. Um, That'll really get attendance going. So, that's not that funny. Uh, I can't hear you. <laughs> Smack me with a tortilla. That's been done too. So, um, maybe even punch the preacher in the mouth. That's a whole other thing though. So anyway, um, yeah, uh-huh, I'm talking talking about you. Okay, so that's an, so you see how this opposition comes. Like there is opposition to everybody staying focused, including the preacher right now. So, you see how opposition can go up, and we see this opposition continue to rise against Jesus, continually go up to the point that they were wanting to kill Jesus. And now we're going to see them continue to oppose Jesus, this opposition continue to rise as they look for an excuse to have Jesus executed, to have Jesus killed. So we're going to see the opposition continue to rise today. I would like it if we could read God's word. Um, so would you all stand with me? And I haven't even told you where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 12. Most of y'all probably knew that already. One, it's in the bulletin. Two, it shouldn't be a surprise. We've been in Matthew for a while. So Matthew chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 22 today. We're going to go through verse 45. Um, I'll be reading this from the Christian Standard Bible. Now, I will warn you, this is a long section. Stay with me. All right. Beginning in verse 22, it says, Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. 
knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who, is not with, anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from, an, from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this evil generation. Thank God for his word, and you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, um, as we turn our attention to this word that we just read, I pray that you would make it effective. Um, Lord, that you would use your word. So, Father, just help us to understand what it is that you're teaching us. Help us to apply your word to our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us as we consider how we build our lives, how we build our our houses. Um, Lord, and I pray that you would guide us, that you would direct us, that you would show us how this text applies to it. Um, Father, we know that you're the good builder. And we pray, we pray today that you would show us how to build Uh, that you would be with us, that you would guide us and direct us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Now, this text that we just read, I know it's a long passage, but this text has application for both you as an individual 
whoever you are, wherever you are, has application for you as an individual, but it also has application for us as a church. And now I'm going to do my best to show you how these things apply to us as a church. I'm also going to try to show you how these things can apply to you as an individual, okay? Um, which I think is interesting. You know, there's this, there's this analogy here of, of a house, right? Of building a house. And we just sang that song, Greater is He uh, That Is Living in Me Than He Who Is in the World. And then we, we kept singing, he lives in us. Like, he lives in us. You know why? Because we're a spiritual house. That's what you are. Like, that's what I am. That's what we are as a church. So I hope that we can see that today, and we can actually look to see how to build the house. Now, Jesus uses a whole handful of metaphors throughout this passage that we just read, right? Uh, a, whole, a whole host of them, Okay. He uses metaphors like a kingdom or a city or a tree, but the one that flows through all of those verses that we just read that he uses again and again is the metaphor of a house. So that's what we're going to use today because a house, whenever we start talking about a house, a house could be your life, right? You and I, we, we get that. Like, this is my house. What happens in my body or with my body, this is my responsibility. This is my house that I'm responsible for. I have to care for this, okay? Some of you are like, Jared, you need to care for it better. Yes, you're right. But also, we talk about the church as the place where God's Spirit resides, right? The universal church, the, not only the universal, but also the local church. We believe that God rests in us and through us. So whenever we talk about the house of God, or I say the house of God, I typically don't refer to a building as the house of God. I don't believe God resides in four walls. Now, this building, I'm very thankful for it, and it's set aside for a particular purpose. And I hope God blesses that. But whenever we talk about the church or the house of God, we're talking about the people, like the community, the body. That's what I'm referring to whenever I say that. So that's why I say this reference to the house has both application for you as individuals and us as a church. So we're going to be looking at both. But all of this starts in verse 22 with Jesus healing this demon-possessed man. Right? This man was not able to hear or able to see. He, he couldn't do either one. Now, this guy's brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. Now, I think we know that this is incredible. And so did the people who were around him, right? It says that the crowds were astounded whenever this happened. And, of course, this would be astounding. This demon-possessed man could not hear, so Jesus couldn't verbally, you would think somebody couldn't verbally command him. He couldn't see, so it's not like he could even sign to him to come out. So Jesus still commands this spirit to leave the man. So it was amazing. Literally, whenever it says that the crowds were astounded, the word means that they were out of standing. Um, one, one, one resource, it translated it like this. It said that the crowd lost their minds. Like, their minds were blown. We read this and it's like, okay, so they were astounded. Yeah. No, no, no. This blew their minds. These people saw this and they knew something crazy had just happened. And they just sat there and they would go, wow. Wow. Jesus did something incredible, so much so that they looked around and they said, could this be the son of David? What they're asking is, could this really be the Messiah? Could this be the one we've been waiting for? And we read that and we think, well, maybe they believe. But the Greek actually expresses a little bit of doubt, neither here nor there. But it does, it's almost like they're saying, this couldn't really be the son of David, could it? This isn't really him, is it? But the Pharisees, they hear these people reflecting, asking these questions, they start wondering. So in verse 24, the Pharisees, they accuse Jesus of working by Satan's power. Say he works by, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, right? By the ruler of the demons. 
Here he is, casting out demons by that power. And I think it's fun. Jesus doesn't just hear what the Pharisees are saying. It actually says there that he knows the thoughts of these Pharisees. He knows what they're thinking. Now, Matthew, first of all, he's very clearly trying to show us that Jesus has all knowledge. Like, Jesus even knows your thoughts. He's trying to show that. But he's doing something even greater than that, than that here, okay? He responds to them. We see Jesus respond to them by showing these necessities for building their house. These necessities for their house. And that's what I want us to look at today. As we consider how do we build in the church, how do we build our lives, what is necessary as we build our house. And that's what I want us to see today. And the first thing that we find is that our house must be united. Our house must be united. Jesus says that his casting out of demons must result from one of two options, right? Whenever he responds, he says, well, there's only one of two options here. He says, either, either my casting out of these demons is from Satan or it's from the Spirit of God. Those are the two options that he gives, right? And he says, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, by Beelzebul, he says the house can't stand. Y'all know that. Things that are divided against themselves, they can't stand. It's like if I wanted to, if I wanted to move this row of chairs here, this front row, I'm going to move. Sorry, Ben. Ace, mm, stop moving. I'm not between the stairs. So if I wanted to move this row of chairs, and I asked Elizabeth to push on the other end so that we can move the chairs, but I'm pushing that way, and she's pushing this way. Is that row of chairs going to go anywhere? It depends. Elizabeth's probably going to move me, um, but most likely not. I mean, they're pretty heavy whenever you start moving a whole lot. There's a lot of drag there. Um, Steve, if we need to, we can just turn it off. You want to do that? Yeah, okay, I got it. Um, so, yeah, we, we don't have to have it. I mean, it's nice to have, but we'll, we'll get by. Y'all cool with that? I don't really care. I'm going to do it anyway. So, I hope you're cool with it. Anyway, so, where was I? What was I talking about? So, if we push against each other, see, look at that, opposition. Whew, whew, we can get there, though. If we push against each other, we know we're not going to get the house built. We're not going to get the job done, right? Because it's divided against itself. We know that somewhat intuitively. It's like playing tug of war, but your teammates are pulling against you. We know that that's not going to work. And Jesus is saying, if I'm casting out Satan's minions who are out here doing Satan's bidding, if I'm going out and throwing them out by Satan's power, isn't Satan working against Satan then? Yeah. Is he going to get anything accomplished? No. So that's a win, isn't it? Like, Satan's, Satan's goals aren't going to be accomplished because Satan's working against Satan. That's not going to work. So, good, okay. So, either I'm working by Satan's power or, he says, I'm working by the Spirit of God. And in verse 28, he starts talking about this. He says, either I'm casting them out by, by Satan's power or by the Spirit of God. And if the Spirit of God is the one doing these things, that means that the kingdom of God has come. He says, you're denying that the Spirit of God is working and that the kingdom of God has come. And since this demon could have only been cast out by the one who has the Spirit of God, that must mean the kingdom has come. And actually, this ties back to what we looked at last week. Um, It said said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, this quote about the servant of the Lord. It says, I will put my Spirit on him. What Jesus is doing is he's casting out this this demon, is saying very clearly, the Spirit of God has come, which means the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is here. It's already breaking in. And what he's saying to these Pharisees is, look, you need to get on board because the kingdom has come. Get on board. Because really, there's only those two options. Only those two options. There is no third way. There's not another one. There is absolutely no neutrality whenever it comes to Jesus. None whatsoever. 
Either we are wholeheartedly, completely united or committed to him, or we're not. There's not a third way. And Jesus says as much in verse 30. He says, either you're for me or you're against me. Either you're gathering with me or you're scattering. So if you're not for Jesus wholeheartedly, that means that you are against him. There's not another option. He says, those are the only two. Now, he says that if you're for me, that means that there's forgiveness for everything. Everything. Right? Well, close. We'll get to what he says there's not forgiveness for here in just a moment. But he says there's forgiveness for all sin and blasphemy. Look, something I want to emphasize again and again and again, and I hope most of you all know this, is it doesn't matter how, how dirty, how ugly, how sinful you think you are. You're not too far gone for Jesus. You're just not. Right? That's just a fact. He says right here, all sins, every sin will be forgiven. That's what he says, every. And you know what that means in the Greek? It means every sin, all of them. It's not a big secret. Like, I hope you get this. Like, I don't care what you think you've done. I've had people tell me, Jared, you don't understand the things I've done. You don't get it. I don't care what you did last week, last month. I don't care what you did this morning. That's not true. I do care. But you get the point. You're not too far gone for Jesus. You're just not. You're not too far gone for Jesus. He forgives every sin. He is able to forgive every single sin but one. But one. Now, this is important because we're about to talk about the only, and I mean the only, unforgivable sin according to the Bible. There is one. Now, if you told me that there is one thing I cannot do and get away with it, I'm probably going to want to know what that is, right? Like, you're telling me I can be forgiven of anything except for this one thing. I want to know what that thing is so I don't do it. Y'all with me on that? Y'all tracking? Yeah, some of you? Some of you don't care. I hope you care. He says there's one unforgivable sin, and that is blasphemy against the Spirit. If somebody ever tells you that there's another unforgivable sin, they're not, telling, they're not speaking biblically. That's the only thing that cannot be forgiven, is blasphemy against the Spirit. But what does that mean? Because, again, I want to make sure I haven't done this. I want to know what this blasphemy against the Spirit is, because I, I want to be forgiven. So, what does it mean? Well, I think context helps here. Let's remember what Jesus just did. Jesus just cast out this demon and he showed indisputable evidence of the Spirit's work. Right? Indisputable evidence. The only way a blind and deaf demon can be cast out is if the Spirit of God comes and demands that it come out. Indisputable evidence of the Spirit's work. And the crowds knew it. So I believe that given the context, the blasphemy of the Spirit is to reject the indisputable evidence of God's work through His Spirit. I believe that's, that's what it is. To the point that absolutely nothing, like nothing is going to be able to persuade these people. I believe that's the blasphemy of the Spirit. When nothing, not even God's undeniable evidence, can persuade someone. Um, there's a New Testament scholar at Dallas Theological Seminary na named Daryl Bach, and he wrote it this way. He said, this blasphemy of the Spirit passage, it refers to making a settled judgment against Jesus. Despite the testimony and activity of the Spirit on Jesus' behalf, blaspheming the Son of Man, in contrast, refers to a single act of rejection versus a permanent decision against Jesus. Look, uh, 
if you're worried about whether or not you've blasphemed against the Spirit, um, I'll, tell, I'll tell it to you like David Platt has said it um, again and again. He said, if you're worried about whether or not you blasphemed against the Spirit, you haven't. Um, because you haven't made that settled judgment against Jesus. You haven't made that settled judgment against the work of the Spirit on his behalf. So if you're worried about making that, that blasphemy, you probably haven't. Okay, So I hope I can give you some reassurance there. But what we need to know is how we respond has eternal consequence. How we respond to the Spirit's work has eternal consequence. At the very end of, let's see, that's, uh, that's the end of verse 32. It says that the one who speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the one to come. The way you respond to the Spirit's undeniable work or the Spirit's work in your life, his testimony of who Jesus is, has eternal consequence. Eternal consequence. He says either you believe in the Spirit's work, you trust the Spirit's work and his testimony of who Jesus is, or you don't. There's not a third way. It's not like you can be halfway on board with who Jesus is. See, following Jesus, coming to Jesus... It requires a total commitment. Because if you believe the Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is, it changes everything. Every part of your life will be consumed by God in the flesh. Every part of your life. So I believe that this is calling for a complete, completely united commitment to Christ as you build your house. Both your life as an individual, it has to be completely united as a commitment to Christ. Or it's not. There's not a third way. And as a church, either we're completely united in our commitment to glorifying God or we're not. We have to be completely united in our commitment to Christ. So our house must be united or else it won't stand. Second, our house must be consistent. Our house must be consistent. Um, really, this is something that I think we know is that our, our, our conduct, our conduct is reflective of our character, Right? Our conduct reflects our character. Or I'm going to say it different. Our character is proven by our conduct. Right? We know that somewhat, somewhat intuitively again. But Jesus here, he uses, an, he uses this analogy of trees. Right? This is another metaphor he uses. He's talking about people like they're trees. And I, I think you get it, right? Okay. We're going to, I'm just going to make sure you understand how this works. So we're going to be a little interactive for just a minute. And all of you are like, I want to go home now. Just a little interactive, okay? I actually want you to verbally answer. On what kind of tree would you find an apple? An apple tree. All right, good. You guys got this. On what kind of tree would you find a peach? A peach tree. Good. You guys got this. Okay. On what kind of tree would you find a raspberry? Oh, I got some of you. So, did anybody say raspberry tree? I heard somebody say bush. Man, I just want to, Oh, come on, man. Raspberries don't grow on trees. Uh, I really want to go with bananas because it turns out banana trees aren't really trees. They're technically shrubs. I didn't know that until this week. So there you go. Anyway, um, now, you know the, you know the tree based off of its fruit, right? We know that. So what the tree produces is reflective of what kind of tree it is. And Jesus uses that metaphor. And then in verse 34, he, he looks at the Pharisees and the scribes, and he says, brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? How can you say good things whenever you are evil? Now, I, I, had, to, I had to pause here as I, was, as I was thinking this through. Can evil people say good things? I would say yes. 
I think they can. Um, of course they can. Now, to keep with this analogy of a tree here, uh, I, I had a fun picture of a, of a tree, which is the only downside of not having a screen. Okay, There's this fun tree that looks just like an apple tree. looks just like an apple tree, but it's called a manchineal tree. Okay, It doesn't grow around here. You don't have to worry about it. So, um, It's called a manchineal tree. Now, I had never heard of this until this week. Um, but the word manchineal actually comes from a Spanish word for little apple. It looks so much like an apple that the tree is named little apple. Uh, that's what it's called. All right? Um, but here's the thing about this tree is some have gone further than just calling it a, a manchineal tree or a little apple tree. They call it manchineal de la muerto, which means ap- little apple of death. Yeah. You guys want to eat that apple now? Didn't figure. Okay. Now, why is it called little apple of death? Well, because it is listed as one of the most poisonous fruits in the world. Yeah, it's actually a poisonous fruit that looks like an apple. Okay, now, if there's any botanists in the house, um, please don't judge me, because I'm going to do something I wouldn't typically do right now. I'm going to quote from Wikipedia. Um, and y'all are like, Jared, come on, man. Sorry, I needed quick information on a manchineal tree, so I googled up, like, what is a manchineal tree, and I got Wikipedia. So, Judge me if you have to. I'm going to quote this because I think this is, this is really good. Oh, this is so much fun. And whether it's true or not, I, I guess I don't know because it's Wikipedia. But it, here's what Wikipedia says about this manchineal tree. It says, all parts of the tree contain strong toxins. Its milky white sap contains chemicals which produce strong allergic contact dermatitis. Standing beneath the tree during rain will cause blistering of the skin from mere contact with its liquid. Even a small drop of rain with the milky substance in it will cause the skin to blister. The sap has also been known to damage the paint on cars. Burning the tree may cause ocular injuries if the smoke reaches the eyes. Okay, that's how poisonous this are. It's, it keeps going. It gets better, though. Although the fruit is potentially fatal if eaten, no such occurrences have been reported in modern literature. Ingestion can produce... Okay, here's some fun words. Ingestion can produce severe gastroenteritis with bleeding, shock, and bacterial superinfection, as well as the potential for airway compromise due to edema. When ingested, the fruit is reportedly pleasantly sweet at first, with a subsequent strange peppery feeling gradually progressing to, uh, to a burning, tearing sensation and tightness of the throat. Symptoms continue to worsen until the patient can, quote, barely swallow solid food because of the excruciating pain and the feeling of a huge obstructing pharyngeal lump. All right. Now, first of all, did you catch that? It says that when it was ingested, people reportedly said it was pleasantly sweet at first. Now, first of all, how would you like to be the person who had to try this fruit and then report what you felt? I'm out. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But did you, first of all, it looks like an apple. I like apples. It looks like an apple. It looks good on the outside. And at first, it tastes pleasantly sweet. But over time, it destroys a person. Literally rips them apart. Like tearing, burning sensation in the throat till you feel like you can't breathe. Now, what's the point of all that? Okay, we might know a tree by its fruit. But just because the fruit looks good at first doesn't necessarily mean it is. Okay, so I just want to caution you with that here. Upon further investigation, sometimes it is poisonous, which is why Jesus says those who produce good things 
do so from their storeroom of good, evil things from their storeroom of evil. See, in verse 34, the very end of it, he says, For the mouth speaks from an overflow of the heart. What you say, specifically your words, they reflect who you are in your innermost part. Like, you may be able to fool people for a little while by looking good for a minute. But over time, the very center of who you are, who you are will find you out. Like, it will be made known over time. You may be able to talk the talk for a while, but the truth is that your words will eventually be revealed for who you are. And our words are so important that Jesus says in verse 36, that we will give an account for every careless word we speak. Every seemingly insignificant word that we say, even the things when we, that we say when nobody else is around, we will give an account for those words. Now, that's scary, especially for somebody like me who doesn't know how to shut up. Like, it's scary. Every careless word we'll give an account for. Why? Because it reflects who we are at the innermost part of our being. It reflects our storeroom, our house. It reflects who's at the center of it, what's at the center of it. And since our words are tied to our heart, Jesus says that you will either be acquitted or condemned because of your words. Which is why I say our words must be consistent. First of all, that's just a fact. Our words will be consistent. But the Pharisees here, they were claiming to be holy and righteous and good men. But they were really living inconsistent lives. Because their words eventually find them out. Right? They come and they demand a sign from God in the flesh. A man who just cast out a blind and deaf demon. They come and demand another sign from him. Their words show that they don't really believe God. Verse 38, they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. These same people who just saw Jesus do something that only God could do demanded to see yet another sign. Their words eventually showed what was in their storeroom. They showed their unbelief, which is why I say our house must be united and our house must be consistent, especially whenever it comes to our words. But the third thing we find here is that our house must be reflective. And I'm not talking about sitting back and pondering things, although I do think that's a good idea. We should think things through. What I'm suggesting whenever I say that our houses must be reflective is that that our house must reflect or imitate the ultimate house, the perfect house. Our houses need to reflect him. That's what I'm saying. Okay, Jesus, he says that these Pharisees, They come and they demand a sign, and really it's indicative of their evil nature. Right? Verse 39, he answers them. He says, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus says, Okay, you'll get your sign. I'll give you a sign. But it's not what they expected, and it's not what they wanted. Now, I'm going to go off in the weeds here for just a minute. I'm going to try to be quick with this because a lot of you are going to be like, I just don't care. Some of you have asked, literally asked me this question, so I'm going to try to, uh, to explain, right? Jesus says that just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. Now, some people are going to contest that. They'll say Jesus, according to the traditional church calendar, was not in the grave for three days and three nights, right? He was crucified on Friday, okay? So he was in the grave Friday night, Saturday of the day, Saturday night, so that's one day and two nights. And then even if you want to count Sunday morning, that's still only two days, and two nights. So how is that three days and three nights? Now, again, this is getting off in the weeds, but some of you have actually asked me this question, asked me to reconcile some of this. So I'm going to do my best to do so. Um, what we need to understand is the context here. Um, 
Now, I found it interesting that if you go read Luke's account of these sayings or Mark's account of these sayings, they both omit where he says three days and three nights with Jesus. Both of, both of those two omit these words. They don't say three days and three nights. And there's a reason for that. Who was Matthew writing to? A first century Jewish audience. Okay? Largely a first century Jewish audience, which is something we need to understand. Okay? Matthew's first century Jewish audience would have recognized the concept of a day very differently than we do as a 21st century American audience. Um, they would have recognized it very different. See, the concept would have been one of an, what's called an ona, which in rabbinical thought... Rabbis would have taught an ona is a day and a night. But with them teaching of these onas, any part of an ona constitutes the whole of an ona. What constitutes a day and a night. So according to Jewish tradition, Jesus saying a part of three days is the same as three days and three nights. Any part of three days constitutes three days and three nights. Again, that doesn't make sense to us, but in Jewish tradition, it's the same thing. Saying three days and three nights or any part of three consecutive days is the same thing. It doesn't make a difference whether you count night, morning, afternoon. It doesn't make a difference. Three days, three nights. Again, told you that's off in the weeds. If you want another example of that, go read Second Chronicles chapter 10, uh, verses 5 and 12, because you see something very similar there. Okay. Now, Jesus goes on, and he says that this sign of Jonah, the sign of the prophet Jonah, was enough for the Ninevites. It was enough for them. Because they, they repented, right? And if you haven't read the book of Jonah, go read the book of Jonah. It's one of my favorites. I love the book of Jonah. Uh, not only is it cool because dude gets swallowed by a huge fish and he gets vomited on the shore, um, it's just so much. And I'll be honest with you, again and again, I have to call myself a Jonah. Because even after God hits me over the head, sometimes I don't get it. Um, so, um, go read Jonah. But the point is, Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. It was enough for them. But Jesus says, this sign isn't enough for you Pharisees. It's not good enough for you. And for that reason, because Nineveh repented, but this generation didn't, it says that this generation will be judged by Nineveh because something even greater than Jonah is here. You had a greater opportunity to repent, yet you failed to. Yet you failed to. And for that reason, you will be judged by them. He goes on, he says something very similar to that with the Queen of the, queen of the South, right? In verse 42. And this is a reference back to 1 Kings chapter 10 where the Queen of Sheba hears of Solomon and his great wisdom, which he got from God. That's the one thing he requested from God was wisdom. So she pursues this godly wisdom, comes from the ends of the earth. This pagan queen, this Gentile queen, comes to Solomon to hear of the wisdom of God. And now these Pharisees are being told, you're going to be judged by this Gentile queen from way out there. This is a slap in the face of these, these Pharisees. Oh, this is good stuff. She just says, something even greater than Solomon is here. And you don't get it. She got it. She understood she pursued godly wisdom. And now the perfect expression of God's wisdom, Jesus, God in the flesh, is here. So, the Queen of Sheba comes and says that because she had a lesser sign, you have a greater, she'll stand up at the judgment, a day of judgment and condemn you. Because she believed and you didn't. Jesus has already given us a sign. See, many of us, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but you prayed for a sign. Uh, I'll admit I have. Um, I'll be the first one to admit that, sure. We pray for a sign, but here's the thing. God's already given us that sign. Jesus died. And like Mike talked about earlier, there's like all kinds of historical evidence suggesting Jesus was a real person who really died, who was really buried, and was really raised. I haven't found another logical historical explanation 
I haven't seen one. I've seen people try. None of them are good. Like The best explanation is that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and we have this greater sign. We have to believe. We have to reflect our house. Look, I want, I want my house to look like his house, so that when people see my house, they see the greater sign. So that they see Jesus. And that's what we should want. See, the problem these Pharisees and scribes had was that they didn't respond to Jesus the way that the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba did. They didn't respond rightly. They didn't repent and follow. They failed to change. What I want to tell you today is we can't afford to make the same mistake. We cannot make that same mistake. Our house must be united, consistent, and reflective. Fourth, our house must be occupied. Okay. Now, we're close to the end of this. We're getting close to lunchtime. Don't check out on me because this is my favorite part of this whole thing. Okay? It's not like the rest of it wasn't important because God's word is always important and we need to know it and understand it. But uh, please, if you have tuned me out, tune back in for just a few more minutes and I'll be quiet. Okay? But this, this is good stuff. I, I love this last part of this. Okay? I want to read this here for just a moment. Uh, I, I want to read these last three verses. And I want to talk about it because uh, this, is, this is really good. So the last three verses, we're going to pick up at verse 43. It says, When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this evil generation. All right, so we get this picture. A demon's cast out of a per- person. A demon's cast out. It goes looking for a new host. It doesn't find one. So it returns to the original host. Everything's been cleaned up. It looks so much better. Things are nice and tidy. And he's not satisfied with that. So he goes and finds these big bad demons to come with him. And they all enter together and destroy the person. Like, just wreck it. Okay? Now, we get that picture. Now, again, the context helps us here. Because is Jesus talking about a person, an individual person who's had a demon cast out? Well, I think it applies. Sure. I think it would apply. But the last part of this says that's how it will be with this evil generation. He's talking about an entire generation of people. He's talking about a group of people. Okay. The problem these scribes and Pharisees had wasn't that they didn't know how to clean house. They knew how to clean up. Absolutely they did. I mean, they were the best at it. They made a living out of cleaning up, out of looking nice and tidy and swept and put in order. That's what they did. That's That's how they got along. And really, if you think about the nation of Israel, who Jesus is addressing here, this generation... They had a history. You go read the Old Testament, you'll see again and again, people rebel against God, they worship idols, then then somebody is raised up, call the people, they repent, and they follow God for a while, and then again, they pick up their idols, and they start worshiping them. And again and again, we see them turn on God and worship something else. And again and again, somebody comes and calls them out of it. And Jesus here is this prophet who is calling them out of something worse than their old idol worship. They've, they've been forgiven of that. Like they've had, okay, they don't have idols. They're not bowing down to statues anymore. Okay, so they've tidied things up. They've cleaned them up. Jesus says something even worse than that has come and dwelt in you. Something even worse. Okay. Now, why did all that happen? Well, 
See, the problem was that their house, their lives, their religion was empty. It was empty. Nothing was there. They left their house empty and it got even worse than it was before. Okay, some of y'all I know own properties, you own homes, you have tenants that come in. Having nobody in a house is sometimes worse than having a bad tenant in a house. Y'all ever seen a vacant house and how fast they decay? Jesus is saying, don't leave your house unoccupied. He's telling us that something more than just tidying up our house needs to happen. Our house needs a good tenant. Because if we don't have a good tenant come fill our house, an undesirable tenant will. And some of his bad friends are going to come with it. Look, I don't believe that the gospel, I don't believe that the Bible, I don't believe that Jesus came just to clean you up, to heal you from physical ailments, to deliver you from addiction. I don't believe he just came to bring your family back together. All those are great things. I don't believe Jesus can do all those. But I believe that Jesus is saying that that's not the point. Tidying your house up is not the point. What he's saying is you cannot stay neutral. You have to have someone dwelling in you. You must have a good tenant take up residence. And the reason I think this is so important is if we as individuals or we as a church, we get all cleaned up and then we go about our business as if we're all done, I think we've set ourselves up for disaster. I would contend that a lot of churches, um, not just in North America, but I know it happens in the U.S., a lot of churches have done this. We've cleaned up. We get together on a Sunday morning, and y'all look good. Y'all are pretty. We clean up. Got a nice building. Come together. We got soft chairs. And we come, and we sit, and we look good. Things are tidied, swept, and put in order. Great. But I want to caution Caution us as a church. We cannot be unoccupied. We can't just look good on the outside but have no substance, nobody living in us. When we come together, it has to, we have to come together not because we want to look good but because we want Jesus in us. Like We need to come together around the person and the work of God, which is the indisputable evidence of the Spirit. He's pointing us to the good tenant. There are too many churches around us, In sometimes I'm afraid even we might try to fall into this category. I'm, I just want to be cautious because I think sometimes churches turn into social groups. I hope you all like each other. That's great. But if we're not coming together around Jesus, we're empty. We're not, social, we're not a social group. We're not a community improvement group. We're not a moral support group. We come together because Jesus wants to live in us and through us. And if we come together for something else, it's going to be empty or worse, destructive. So, all those things might be good, but we have to come together around the hope of Jesus and be occupied by him, both individually and corporately. All right? Our house must be united, consistent, reflective, and it must be occupied. So what? Well, are you mindful of your house? Are you mindful of your house? Jesus points out that what we say is an overflow of what's in our heart, what's residing in our house. But that last paragraph points to a very similar truth, that our, our house is going to be governed by whoever's living in it, by whatever's living in it. 
Your house is governed by what's living in it. So are we occupied, and I'm going to say it another way, and I know this isn't the same thing, but are we occupied or preoccupied with Jesus? Or are we just cleaning house so that we can look pretty but not really having any change? Look, what we need is somebody to come and take residence in us. We need somebody to come to the very core of who we are, the very innermost part of who we are. And that someone is either Jesus or it's not. There's not a third way. And honestly, if it's not Jesus, he warns us we're headed for disaster. So I want to urge you all today, both as a body and as individuals, let's be united around the person and the work of the one who did more than we could have ever asked for. He did more than we could have ever asked for. The one who, by his Holy Spirit, takes up residence in us. Um, What we need is to be united around Christ. And if you have never experienced his forgiveness, I promise you he can. Um, He can forgive you. And I tell you today, you can be forgiven of every sin. So I want to urge you today, be mindful of your house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you that... That you tell us how to build our lives. Um, and I know we've used this metaphor of a house, um, Lord. So I pray that you would continue to teach us how to build the house. Um, that you would be there with us. That you would be the one at the center of our homes. At the center of our lives. At the center of our church. Um, so Father, help us as we consider how we do that. Um, Lord, and you do tell us. Um, We looked at the verse here uh, a few months ago that talked about the one who hears your words and puts them into practice, builds on a solid foundation. So, Father, let us be those builders who build the house on your solid rock, to have you living in the house. Lord, I pray that you would dictate everything about who we are. Lord, that you would help us to see that neutrality or being halfway in on Jesus isn't sufficient. Father, I pray that you would send your spirit and you would reveal yourself to us again, that we would see you again and again, Lord, and that by that undeniable, by that undeniable work, I pray that we would repent and that we would believe. So, Father, grant us faith that we might believe. Uh, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this house that you've built. Um, I pray that you would continue, continue to work, continue to make it into what you want it to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.